I only preached on two verses, and it was one of the longest sermons I've preached in a long time. And uh, I saw somebody after the service Sunday, and they said, what happened to that short-winded sermon you promised? <clears throat> and I won't mention any names, but their initials are Betty Manus. Was the one <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so I'm not making any promises today, but uh, we'll see what, what the Lord has in store for us. But well, let's look at those first few verses, and, and we see that John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and those that worship at the altar. Uh, this, whenever measurements are taken, this indicates favor. And the, the court of the Gentiles, however, was not to be measured. It was to be left out, thus showing that uh, God's disfavor on the Gentiles. And this should show us, too, that the church age is over, because during the church there is no distinction in the church between Jew and Gentile. Now we see that the holy city is to be trodden down for 42 months or three and a half years. And what is the holy city? Jerusalem. So this is dealing with Israel. Okay, That's a big clue to us that what's going on in this chapter has to do with the nation of Israel. This is not the church that's in focus here. This, and uh, one, one final note here, that whenever we, we're going to see a lot of numbers uh, from here on out. And unless we're told otherwise, we should take those numbers literally. Seven, uh, three, three and a half, twelve hundred and sixty, six, six, six is a literal number. Okay, it's not six, six, seven or, or six, six, eight. So just uh, bear that in mind as we go through our studies. So we're told in verse two. Uh, well, let's pray first. I'm sorry. <laughs> let's pray. My preachers are not here today, so I'm, I'm all out of sorts here. But pray for uh, uh, Preacher Arnold. He's filling in at uh, Brown Creek. And remember Preacher Larry as he's continuing to recover from his infirmity. So remember us both in prayer. And y'all agree in prayer for me this morning that I can uh, preach God's Word faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the ministry of your word, uh, thankful for the opportunity to preach. God, please open our hearts and minds today to uh, the truth of your word. And we do pray you be with uh, Preacher Jackson at, at Brown Creek this morning. Continue to heal Preacher Larry. Thankful for his ministry here at Deep Springs. And uh, bless him and Della in a special way, we pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds, Father. And we'll give you the praise for all this accomplished today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 3 says, but, um, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. It's emphatic in the Greek. These two witnesses of mine is how it actually reads in the Greek. Now, there's a principle in Scripture of two witnesses. If you'll look on the screen there in Deuteronomy uh, 19, it says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or any sin, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the matter be established. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that this is the way we deal with conflict in the church too. It says, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or more, one or two more, that in the mouth of how many witnesses? Two or three, every word shall be established. Second Corinthians 13, 1. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you in the mouth of how many? Two or three witnesses shall every word be established. 
And I didn't write this down on the board, but I think 1 Timothy 5 says that against an elder, don't receive an accusation uh, without two or three witnesses. And how different is that from our society that jumps immediately to judgment, right? We cancel something before we even know what, what we haven't even heard the matter. And it's folly to us. All right, so that's the principle um, of, of two witnesses. But he says in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses. So that tells us that God has shown them to us before. Because we're, we're not giving any other context, are we? My two witnesses, so God expects us to know who they are. And so I think we'll, uh, we'll be able to discover some things. And he says, they will prophesy. Now, how long do they prophesy? 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Now, notice in verse 2, that same period of time, excuse me, that same uh, span of time, not period. This is important. The same span of time is described how? 42 months, right? So why now is it described as uh, 1,260 days? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the Holy Spirit is giving us a nuance here that we're dealing with two different time periods. Verse 2 deals with the last half of the tribulation period. Verse 3 deals with the first half. And if, you'll be, if you can make it Wednesday night, I'm going to make a compelling case and I say compelling, I'm going to say within about 99.9 that I'm sure of the, uh, the time of the two witnesses, which is the first half, and the identity of the two witnesses. Okay? And so uh, stay tuned for that. If I've got time, I'll do a YouTube video for those of you who can't make it. I know it's hard for some of you to make it on Wednesday, so if I can do it, I will make a video uh, for that. I won't make any promises, but I'll try. So pray that God will stretch my time this week so that I can do that. But these, these, they're going to prophesy for uh, 1,260 days. This is a clue also that the church isn't here. If the church is here, we don't need the two witnesses, amen? Because you and I are witnesses, right? You and I are the ones. Jesus said, upon this rock I build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now it says here that they are... Um, they're prophesying and they're wearing a three-piece three suit with wingtips. Is that what it says? Sackcloth. Now, if I showed up in here today to preach in sackcloth, you would think, well, preacher Henry done lost his marbles. He needs to be in an asylum somewhere. And you probably think that anyway, but um, sackcloth in the Bible is a symbol of mourning and repentance. Daniel, in chapter 9, when he prayed that great prayer of repentance, he prayed in sackcloth and, and, and ashes and repented. And uh, Jeremiah, uh, up there on the screen, if you can read it. Adam, you got your microphone turned on still? How convenient is that? It's right there for you. You want to read that scripture for us? That's uh, Jeremiah six twenty six. O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth, and wallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. All right, and you can do a word study on sackcloth, and it, you know, you'll see that throughout the scriptures, that's a symbol of uh, mourning and repentance. Um, what about Jonah? Jonah 3, 
verses 5 and 6. Will you read that, Adam? It's on the board there. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on a sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Wow. Now that was a wicked people. The Assyrians were very cruel. But Jonah preached, and they repented, and even the king put on sackcloth and ashes. Imagine if our leaders in our government would put on sackcloth and ashes and repent before God. Just imagine. And uh, I think it might take a tragedy, tragedy to get that that point but that was a dire situation right because they were going to be destroyed i'm going to teach you a little history today because uh in most of the public schools they don't teach it how many of you heard of the national day of prayer yeah well now it's a big ecumenical thing you know we we bring the muslims and the buddhists and everybody out to the, the white house lawn and we pretend that we're all praying to the same god but i want you to see what george washington this is the origin of the national day of prayer it used to be called Day of Fasting, Humiliation, and Prayer. You want to read that proclamation there, Adam? If you can read it. On May 15, 1776, General George Washington ordered, The Continental Congress, having ordered... Friday the 17th instant to be observed as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, humbly to supplicate the mercy of the Almighty God, that it would please him to pardon all the, our manifold sins and transgressions, and to prosper the arms of the United Colonies, and finally establish the peace and freedom of America upon a solid and lasting foundation. The General commands all officers and soldiers to pay strict obedience to the orders of the Continental Congress, that by their unfeigned and pious, pious observance of the religious duties, they may incline the Lord and giver of victory to prosper our arms. Well, how about that? You know, if you hear the, the, the cacophony of voices today, they say that it wasn't a Christian nation, that we were all, uh, that, that it was just a bunch of bigots that came over here oppressing everybody. But if you do your homework, you find out that this was founded upon godly principles, that it was a Christian nation, and that our first president, Proclaimed a day of fasting and humili humiliation. And I think we need to get back to that. Instead of having pride festivals in the front lawn of the White House, we need to have sackcloth and ashes and humble ourselves and say, God, have mercy on us. Spare our land. Forgive us of our sins. And cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Such a ministry is not popular, though, is it? And that's why they, these two witnesses will have special power. Now, we get to verse 4, back to Revelation 11. And it says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Do you see that? So these are specific individuals that we are to have a reference point somewhere in the Bible. We're not left to our sanctified imagination. We can find out exactly what the reference is. And if you will turn with me now to the book of Zechariah, I want you to go first to chapter 2.
It's right before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. If you're scurrying to find it. In Zechariah 2... You're going to see verse 1. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said, to do what? To measure Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? What do we just read in Revelation? John sees, uh, John is told to do what? To measure the temple, the altar, and those that worship. <clears throat> All right, now go to Zechariah chapter 4. And this, hopefully this is going to be a blessing to you. For me, this is probably going to be the most practical of all the things that we talk about this morning. Zechariah 4. And Adam, if you would just read that, that chapter for me. But before he does, I want to give you the context, okay? I want you to understand. The, uh, the exiles have come back from captivity in Babylon. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. And they came back, and they're trying to rebuild the temple. Cyrus had given them permission to rebuild the temple. And they, uh, they started out, and then the project kind of floundered. And they're discouraged, because the temple's not coming along very well. The people are not interested. So God sends Zechariah and Haggai to stir up the people and to, to encourage Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the high priest. He's not the one that conquered Jericho. And Zerubbabel, he's like the governor. He's not a king because Persia is the empire. But these two guys have been given the task to rebuild the temple. And they're very discouraged. Okay? So understand that's the context of all of this. All right, Adam. Sorry. Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the, seven, and on the stand seven lamps and seven pipes to the seven lamps. The two olive trees are by it, and one at the right of the bowl, and the other to, as at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel and talk, who talked with me, and saying, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, and that not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the days of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the world, whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and to its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip in the receptacles of the two gold pipes, which from the golden oil drains? 
Then he answered to me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Thank you. They were given an impossible task. And God says, Don't worry about it. It's not your job. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by the Spirit of the living God. I want to encourage you, Sunday school teacher, praise and worship leader, youth leader, Bible school leader. Sometimes we face impossible tasks and we get discouraged. I know a lot of pastors of small churches that are discouraged right now. But the Bible says don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise it. You might have one or two people in your Sunday school class, but you teach it faithfully. You prepare as if you're going to speak to 500 people. You give it just as much gusto as much effort. I try to, you know, we don't have maybe 100 people in this church on an average Sunday, but I try to prepare and preach as if I'm going to preach before 10,000 people, you know. Because if you're faithful in a few things, you'll be uh, ruler over many. But if you're faithful in the least of things, you'll be faithful in, in bigger things. You will be. But I love that it speaks of grace. Everything is about grace here. It's not about Zerubbabel's intellects. It's not about Joshua's charisma. It's about the spirit of the living God empowering them to do something they could never do on their own. Listen, I'm nothing. I need God to help me. I need God to help me to preach. I need him to breathe on me. I need him to speak through me. I need him to empower me. Hallelujah. You need that in your ministry. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now this imagery here is of the olive oil. It's a continual supply. No priest to uh, pour the oil in every day. It's just a continual supply. And I believe God's got enough oil for you and me to where our cup can run over every day. I believe that with all my heart. Now notice at the end of, the, uh, end of Zechariah 4, it says these are the two anointed ones. The Hebrew literally says the sons of oil. <laughs> That's how it reads. Who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Do you see that? All right, let's go back to Revelation now. 11. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the who? God of the earth. Same verbiage. So these two witnesses have a ministry that is similar yet not identical to that of Zerubbabel and Joshua. What was their task? They were tasked with overseeing the rebuilding of the temple. Okay. So do, are you beginning to see some, some lines connected, some dots connected here? That these two witnesses are going to oversee, I believe, the construction of this, the third temple. Because there's going to be a lot of opposition to that, Right? Is the Muslim world going to say kumbaya when they start building the temple? No, they're going to be furious. So they're going to need supernatural power. And guess what? God's got plenty of it. <laughs> He's got plenty of it. All right, verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, you think anybody will want to? Yeah. Fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, the irony here is that at one point, John wished he had that power. He wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And Jesus said, no, you've you got the wrong spirit. 
Wouldn't that be great if you had that gift? You know? <laughs> as long as you were the only one that had the gift, right? You preach the Word of God, and if they don't like it, just poof, they're gone. It's a whole different way of evangelizing. And a lot of people want to spiritualize this, and they say, well, that's, that's just symbolic. It speaks of the fire of the Word of God going forth from the mouth of the prophet. Yeah? Well, have you ever read your Bible in the Old Testament, that kind of thing happened? Fire came down from heaven? Different times? You've got to keep in mind, too, that we're dealing with demonic powers, right? The locust and the, the fire-breathing horses. So God's got something that's equal to the task, greater than the task. Amen? So uh, don't listen to these seminary deadheads who say that all the miracles passed away when the apostles died. They were not the source of the power, right? Why do we need Holy Ghost power today? Because the devil's got his power at work in the world. And my Bible says, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So the miracles haven't ceased. We're going to see them again in the book of Revelation, right? This is literal fire, I believe. So I know you like to have, you guys like, uh, you're all like you're from Missouri, right? Show me, it's show me state. So let's do some exploration, and I won't be long-winded with this. Uh, in Numbers 16, we're not going to turn there, but I, but I do implore you to, to read that. That's when the children of Israel got tired of Moses, and they decided we need a new pastor, led by Korah. And what happened to Korah, uh, there was a judgment with fire that involved fire, and the earth actually swallowed them up. They went alive into the, the earth. Now, most of us are familiar with the battle on Mount Carmel, the duel between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And he uh, poured water around the, the trench, and he called fire down from heaven. Okay? So Elijah did that. Now, it's interesting to me that, uh, that, the, that Satan was not able to do that. Amen? But in the tribulation period... He will be able to. So just make a note of that. Make a little mental note of it, okay? Now, go with me to 2 Kings chapter 1. And we're going to see another instance of Elijah calling fire down from heaven. Second Kings chapter 1. Adam, I'm going to call on you again. And if you would, read verses 1 through 14. 2 Kings 1, 1 through 14. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Hazah fell through the lattice of the upper room into Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of the Beelzebub and God of Ekron whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, 
You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you shall have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, What kind of man was it that came up to you and meet you and told you these words? So they answered to him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tisbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty men. So he went up to him, and there he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And fire came down from the heaven and consumed him and his fifty. fifty. Then he sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said to him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again he sent a third captain of fifty with his fifty men. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of the fifties with their fifties. But let my life not now be precious in your sight. That's comical, isn't it? That third guy, he got a revelation. He, he wasn't a cessationist. He believed in miracles. And he said, yeah, let's, let's try a different approach this time. <laughs> one and two, they, they, you know, the second one especially, he had already seen what had gone on. But I want you to see here, there's historical precedent of Elijah calling down fire and devouring the enemies, okay? And I believe this was real fire. You think those other captains of 50 uh, or whatever believed it was real fire? Oh, yeah. Uh, It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't the word of God going forth from the mouth of the prophet. It was fire that consumed them. Okay. Let's go back to Revelation 11 now. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, have we seen that before? We have. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah told Ahab that there would be no rain Uh, but according to his word. Now, we're not told, I don't think, in Kings, how long the drought lasted. But you get to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and we find out how long it lasted. But I tell you the truth, Luke 4, 25, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for how long? Three and a half years. Oh, boy, does that sound familiar? Three and a half years. Great famine was throughout the land. What about James 5, 17? Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly 
that it might not rain. And it rained not for how long? Three and a half years. So there's your two or three witnesses. Mouth of two or three witnesses. All right. Uh, Revelation 11 says, Also, they have power to turn the water into blood. Hmm. Have we seen that before? We have. I did a Google image search for Moses, and guess who came up? Charlton Heston. <laughs> so I think that's him there. Uh, look with me in Exodus 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, the Nile River, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Was this symbolic blood or was this literal blood? I believe it was literal. Exodus 8 through 12 outlines the other nine plagues. Flies, lice, I mean, frogs. We're going to see some of this uh, later on in the, in the book too. So there's going to be a lot of miracles that take place during this, um, this time period. All right. Skip Heitzig, uh he mentioned something that I thought was intriguing. He said it's possible that the two witnesses are the ones bringing forth the, judge, the trumpet judgments. Because you look... Remember, the fire's coming down from heaven. The waters are turning to blood. So it's possible these two witnesses are calling down the trumpet judgments from heaven. Or they're interpreting it anyway. All right. Verse 7. Revelation 11. Important sentence here. It says, When they have finished their ministry or their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Until God is finished with them, they are immortal. And I want to say to you, until God is finished with you, you're not going to die a minute before your time. God's got a ministry for you to do. You're not leaving this world until you finish it. So every day you ought to say, Lord, expand my ministry. <laughs> Show me what you want me to do today. <clears throat> and God is sovereign, of course. But he says, when they finish their testimony, the beast, this is the first mention of the beast in Greek theorion. It speaks of his character, his beastly nature. He will make war and kill them. Notice he comes out of the bottomless pit. This is your first indication here that the Antichrist will come back from the dead. We saw the abyss, remember in chapter 9, verse 1, an angel uh, sounded, a star fell from heaven, and, and to him was given the key of the what? The bottomless pit or the abyss. Same place, it's the abode of the damned, demons. So this is the first indication that he's coming back from the dead. Now it says they're dead bodies, will lay in the street of the great city 
which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So that tells you that most of the nation at this time is not redeemed. Where was our Lord crucified? Jerusalem. This is all taking place in Israel. Sodom speaks of the sexual immorality. Egypt speaks of the idolatry. Then those, says from the peoples, uh, tongues, tribes, and nations. There's that fourfold designation. We'll see their dead bodies for three and a half days. Now, we don't, I don't know why it's three and a half days. Maybe it coincides with their, their ministry, three and a half years. I don't know. But notice the whole world is going to see their dead bodies. Now, this is something that wasn't possible in John's day, but it's possible in our day. Where are they going to see it? On their phone, on CNN, or if you're saved, Fox News. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They, they've all got their slant, you know. They've all got their biases or whatever. CNN and Fox News. But they're going to see their dead bodies. Now, this is an insult to the Jewish people because they bury their people the same day that they die. So this is, they're, allow, they're allowing them to decompose. But I think there's something else that's at work here. I think the Antichrist is, is putting them out in the street as a trophy. You know, I killed these two guys. How are you going to mess with me? I think that's what's at work here. Now look at verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth. There's the earth dwellers. How many times have we seen the earth dwellers? Those are the rebels. Those are the people that hate God. It says they will rejoice over them. This is the only time there's any rejoicing in the tribulation period. Amazing. The only joy is when these two guys are dead. And it says they will make merry. And, and this is ironic here. They send gifts to each other. Can you imagine? David Jeremiah says this is a satanic Christmas party. They're sending gifts to each other. Because these two men tormented them who dwell on the earth. There again is that phrase, dwell on, dwell on the earth. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Praise God. And great fear fell on all who saw them. Imagine that's going to be the breaking news story in the middle of the tribulation period. Breaking news. Uh, guys, I know we've been giving out gifts for the last few hours, but it was a little premature. They come back to life. They stood on their feet, great fear fell on all of them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying up to them, what? Come up hither. That's the same cry that John heard in Revelation 4, remember? And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus did, just like you and I will meet the Lord in the air in the clouds to be with him forever. And their enemies saw them. Praise God. And if I was one of the two witnesses, I'd be going, eh, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> told you but this is a solemn moment <laughs> and in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell perhaps this is a tithe of sorts God is 
uh, taking a, t- a tithe from the city. I don't know. But in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. It's interesting. There were 7,000 people uh, in Elijah's day that had not bowed to Baal, but here there's 7,000 that die. I don't know if that's significant. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. They, I believe that this is the conversion. This leads to the conversion of the remnant of Israel. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So go with me. Uh, back up now to uh, chapter 8 of Revelation. And Adam, if you'll read verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels are about to sound. So uh, we're in between now, the sixth trumpet and the seventh. And now the seventh trumpet is about to sound. So let's go back to 11 now. Verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded. Now we get to the seventh trumpet. Verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Now there's still three and a half years to go. But God says victory is already here. It's assured. This shows that God's in control in the midst of the chaos. And He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God. Uh, By the way, that's us. So, when you read this, just think about this is what you're going to do. When that seventh trumpet blows, you and I are not going to be sitting on the throne. We're going to get off of our seats and get down on our faces and worship the Lord. (laughs) That's us. And we're going to say something, okay? So maybe we should practice it now. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do that, but (laughs) this is what we're going to do. We're going to worship, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Now that's not for another thousand years, the white throne judgment. But, but God's put, you know, we're, we're looking at all these together. You should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and, and destroy those who destroy the earth. Now notice in verse 18, it says the nations were angry. Go with me to Psalm 2. This is an echo of Psalm 2. You should be real familiar with Psalm 2. This is the psalm that tells us that God has a son. Psalm 2, and I'm going to get Adam just to read the whole psalm whenever he gets there. Psalm 2, 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and the distress from them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you and ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he him be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are those who put their trust in him praise God God has a son and the Bible says we need to kiss the son this is obeisance obeisance to the son alright last verse of the chapter chapter 11 then the temple of God was opened in heaven oh my Remember, we started with the temple on the earth, didn't we? John sold to measure it. But now the temple is open in heaven. Okay. Now the, te- the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, these, this is another clue to us. This is how God met with who? The church? With the children of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant disappears we don't know where it's at. Some people claim to know where it's at. God knows where it is. But that's the earthly one. Okay? But the one we need to be concerned about is the one that's in heaven. Because when God gave Moses the instructions, the pattern, he says, I want you to make everything according to the pattern that I'm showing you in the heavens. So there's, I don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is on earth, but I know that there's an Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And that is where the presence of God is. In 1 Samuel 4, it says, The people sent to Shiloh that they may bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. This is where God dwelled in the Old Testament. The high priest would go behind the the curtain one time a year. He would go behind the veil and the Shekinah glory of God was there. And this represented the, the, the presence of God And it was a fearful thing. It was a terrifying thing. You notice in Revelation, it says that when they saw the the, the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, there was lightning, thundering, and earthquake. God is a holy God. He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's righteous. His law. All of the judgments that are happening in the tribulation period, they're happening because of the holiness and the righteousness of God. A holy and a righteous God is taking vengeance on the world. Look with me in John chapter 14. John 14. Adam, would you read 1 through 6? Very familiar passages of Scripture. Upper room discourse. 
let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you also may be. And where I will go, you, the way you also go. Thomas said to him, Lord, do we not, not know what, where you are going? And how do we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Amen. Jesus told his disciples, he said, I'm going back to the Father's house. He said, I'm preparing a place for you. So that where I am, there you may be also. And they say, well, we don't know where you're going. How do we, how do we get there? And Jesus said, there's only one way. That ark symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. It was acacia wood covered in gold. It speaks of his humanity and his deity. There is only one way to approach a holy God, and that is through his Son who shed his blood for you and me. Would you stand? I tell you what, the tribulation is going to be an awful time. We're only to the halfway point, guys, in the tribulation period. But eternity is real. Millions of years. Where are you going to spend the next million years? Are you going to spend it in the Father's house? Or are you going to spend it in the lake of fire, tormented? Away from the presence of God. Away from every comfort. Away from every wonderful thing. You can go to heaven. The price has been paid. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was put in that tomb. He rose again the third day. If we will repent of our sins, believe in our heart, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, we too can be saved. Christian, believer in Jesus Christ, when that trumpet sounds, the next thing that's going to happen is you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for our salvation, but for our reward. I'm going to ask you, what are you doing for Jesus? What are you doing for Him? Because that will be the basis of how you spend the next thousand years is what you're doing right now. If there's sin in our life, let's confess it and get rid of it. If there's laziness, let's shake it off and get busy for the Lord. If we're dry and dusty, how many Christians, I wonder, are running on empty? When was the last time you said, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit? I believe we need to be praying for a fresh anointing, a fresh infilling, because God has an endless supply. So I'm inviting you now, if that's you, if any of those apply to you, would you come pray with me?